Well, before we begin uh, this morning, let me just invite you to do a few things. One, we were having some audio issues earlier on. Uh, We hopefully have corrected those. If it's sounding okay, doable, Heath is giving me a thumbs up. Thanks, Heath. That's great. Uh, The other thing is, feel free, if you feel comfortable, uh, to leave your your screen on while, while I preach. Uh, It not only reminds us that we receive God's word together in community, but it's also an encouragement to see you uh, as as I preach, as I would normally on a Sunday morning. So those two things. Well, 1 John 2, verses 12 to 14. Uh, If you'd like to stand, you can. Hear what John has for us this morning. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for this reprieve in 1 John, wherein we are reminded of these foundational things, these foundational truths. I ask that if anything, we would leave this morning, Father, uh, encouraged, confident uh, in who we are in Christ before you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there are no slides this week, so if you have your Bible, I'd encourage you to turn to 1 John 2 because you'll want to follow along there, and then hopefully we'll be back to slides next week. Fake it till you make it. Uh, Maybe you've heard that motto before. It's one that I used to live by, and there's some wisdom uh, in fake it till you make it. No one is as competent or as confident as they would appear or like you to believe But there are times when fake it till you make it works against you. For example, when I was in elementary school, I had told my teachers and my peers that I was a a competent skier. I was very good, in fact, at at skiing is what I had said to my peers. And suddenly I found myself on a chairlift, having not skied really at all, about to do a double black diamond run. Fake it till you make it was not very helpful in that situation. Uh, Fake it till you make it is also a terrible motto for tests. See, I'm pretty good at appearing smart in classroom discussion. It's a skill, I would say I have. But tests, well, tests properly designed, they cannot be cheated. There's no fake it till you make it in a good test. And, And fake it till you make it doesn't really work in the dating world either. Ask my wife. Uh, I pulled off one or two fancy dinners in the beginning, but soon that visa bill is coming, and we didn't eat that well going forward. See, fake it till you make it is a motto not only applied to ski hills or classrooms or first dates, but is a motto that is often found amongst Christians as well. Here's what I mean. So far in 1 John, he's been identifying the marks, the marks, the habits, the traits, the practices of those who are truly in God's family. And if you're a bit at all like me, 
you're not coming into week five of this first John series with a ton of confidence. I, I walk in the light sometimes. I love my brother or sister in Christ sometimes. I keep God's commands sometimes. It, it's quite likely that the past four weeks have not filled you with an overwhelming sense of confidence. And so you think, because this is what I think, well, I'll just fake it till I make it. I'll look like a Christian outwardly until inwardly I catch up to that. And so you continue your Christian life, your walk with Jesus, trying to do these things, be this person, and all the while a nagging, confidence-zapping voice is whispering, you're a fraud. Not only are you a fraud, but you're a fraud, and soon others will know it. You'll be found out. If that's you this morning, if you feel at all like a fraud, John once more is putting on his pastoral hat and pulling up a chair to sit beside you and beside me. What we have before us in 1 John, sorry, 1 John 2, 12 to 14, is a, a pastoral reprieve. Before John launches into more of what it means to live faithfully as a Christian in this world, he wants to make sure that you and we and I know something. And actually, conveniently for my sermon outline, he wants to make sure that we know three things. And there's no slide for this, so, so here they are. Here are the three points of the sermon today, the three things that John wants us to know. First, little children, you're forgiven by the Father. So point number one is you're forgiven by the Father. Point two, the second thing John wants us to know is that you know God. So not only are you forgiven by the Father, but you know God. And then thirdly and finally, he'll want us to see that you have overcome the evil one. So your sins are forgiven by the Father, you know God, and you have overcome the evil one. That's our outline. Let me invite you, 1 John 2, verse 12, and let's read the first thing that Pastor John wants to remind us of. Bible's open. Turn there with me. John says in this one verse, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Now, as we've seen, and as we will see, when John uses the language of children or little children, it's a sort of all-encompassing term to address uh, the entire church or all the churches to whom he writes. And, and this might be confusing to you, especially in the context today, because at first glance, it seems like John is writing to three different age groups, right? He has children, young men, and fathers. Now, I want to just interject here just a brief teaching moment because this is a passage that can be difficult to understand. There are a number of views on how exactly we should read these three verses we have before us this morning. As some, as I just said, think John is addressing three literal different age groups, uh, the young, uh, the middle-aged, and the older. Others think John is not writing to literal age groups, but rather to varying groups of Christian maturity. And so we have the immature, the maturing, and the mature. 
And while both of these views have their merits, I, I think, to get to the heart of this passage, here's how we should understand it. When John says children, he's writing to everybody, as I've already said, all people, men, women, all people. And later, when John transitions to refer to young men and fathers in our text, he is referring here, I think, not to literal young men, not to literal fathers, but to two stages of Christian maturity, those who are maturing and those who are indeed mature. In other words, here's what John is saying in this passage. I write to you all children, all children of God, but I have something specific to say to you who are maturing, whether you're male or female, and those who are mature, whether you're male or female. And to all of us, the first thing that Pastor John wants to say to us, really simply, those of us who feel like frauds, those who feel like phonies, he says really simply, our sins are forgiven for his name's sake. For something to be done on account of or for the sake of Jesus' name is to simply say this, because of what Jesus has done, on account of who Jesus is, your sins are forgiven. Uh, as a teenager, uh, I'm, I'm, this is a bit of an embarrassing story. Uh, I would sometimes visit this club, some people would call it a country club, uh, where my dad was a member. And the best thing about being in this club was that the food was free, or, or so I thought. See, at the end of the meal, all I had to do was give them my dad's name and my dad's member number, and they would let me walk out of the restaurant without paying a cent. I thought this place was amazing. I could go in, order a you know, bowl of pasta, and walk out, free food. Now, if you're aware at all, you know that that's not how things work in life. See, my dad was, was paying for it. But in identifying myself with my father and giving that member number, I was invoking a forgiveness, as it were, that I had not earned, that I had not paid for, that had come to me and sometimes my friends simply by virtue of being his son. For my dad's namesake, that meal seemed free to me. But let me press this illustration even further. Remember, Pastor John this morning has an eye towards us, insecure, perhaps anxious, confidence-lacking people, Christians like you and me. Imagine I was sitting at this table and I was not confident that my dad had settled the bill. What would that eating experience have been like? Maybe it's because I wasn't entirely convinced of his good character. I was 13. I had no way of paying for the food. How anxiously would I have eaten that bowl of pasta in front of me? The gift given to me by my father would have been squandered, unsure of whether or not I was walking out with my friends or if I was hanging back to do dishes to pay for the meal that I had eaten. And I love that John begins in this reprieve on this point. The confidence that John wants to give us this morning is located entirely outside of ourselves. It's in Jesus. It's in Jesus' name. See, First John has told us, we ought to examine our lives, right? We ought to see if we are obeying Jesus' commands. 
if we are loving one another, if we are walking in the light. But we must be reminded, and John stops to remind us this morning, we must be reminded that all of these things flow out of a relationship with Jesus, a union with Jesus, a relationship made possible by the forgiveness of Jesus. Meaning, and this is very simple but very important, that your forgiveness this morning does not hinge on whether you did amazing or you blew it this week. Your forgiveness does not hinge on whether you had to ask for forgiveness once or 50 times this week from those that you live with. Your forgiveness does not hinge on anything that you've done. And in talking with some of you this week, I know that many of you feel or rather know that God has forgiven you. But what you're unsure of is whether or not he loves you. Yeah, he forgives me, but surely he does not love me like he once did. His forgiveness, Christ City, does not come begrudgingly, but abundantly, lavishly, like it did at your conversion. How? Well, he showed us a few weeks ago. Through Jesus' atoning sacrifice, we have complete and total forgiveness. And through Jesus' work of advocacy before the Father, that same lavish, loving forgiveness is constantly being applied to us today. And so Christ City, today's sermon is, is for your comfort and for your confidence. Take comfort. Take confidence. Your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. But only for his name's sake. Next, Pastor John will tell us, take heart. You know God. Look at verses 13 and 14 with me. John is repeating things in our passage today, and you'll notice he begins verse 13 and verse 14 in a similar fashion. Look at those passages or those verses. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. And look at verse 14. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. Let's stop there. Uh, the way that John is using this, this thrice-repeated word, no, 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 is much like how we saw Heath read it to us a few weeks ago in, in 1 John 2, verse 3. And by this we have come to know him, right? We know that we have come to know him, rather, if we keep his commandments. Th this knowing is not a knowing of facts right? It's not a mere recognition of his existence. It is knowing God personally. And, and one of my favorite illustrations about distinguishing these two types of knowing is talking about how a stalker knows a person versus how the friend knows that person or the spouse knows that person. The stalker might know a lot of facts about the person, right? A creepy amount of facts, a scary amount of facts about that person, but they do not truly know that person the way that the spouse or the friend knows and enjoys and relates to that person. Same idea here. John says, church, you know the bridegroom Jesus. 
in him you've come to have loving fellowship with the Father, and your knowledge is shown and seen as you love God and love others, as you obey his commandments. John says this, I know that you know him because I've seen it. I've seen it. And I want to say the exact same thing to you this morning, Christ City. I know that you know him because I've seen it. Now, every once in a while, a text comes along that allows a pastor to just brag on his church. And that's what I'm going to do for the next five minutes. I'm going to just brag on you. This is one of those times. Over this past year, if you can remember, early pandemic, over this past year, when suddenly we could no longer gather, I saw you open your homes, your fridges, and your pantries on a week's notice and invite people in as we began gathering as house churches. I saw you do this. Over this past year, as the pandemic progressed, I have seen you buy literally thousands of cups of coffees for one another. Coffees that you have drunk as you gave up your evenings and your weekends to walk alongside one another through debilitating depression, crippling anxiety, downright hopelessness. You have been there for one another this year. Over this past year, I have seen you Open your wallets to the point that it hurts. You need to know this, Christ City, that in a year as economically turbulent as 2020 was, we hit, as a young church plant, over 96% of our targeted giving. We did this as a young church plant that has gathered longer on Zoom than we have in person. At Advent, as a network, we raised over $100,000 for ministries like the one that Heath is pioneering on the downtown east side to support refugees and families and those in need at at Edmonds Community School. Just this past week, I was told the story of this woman in the Edmonds community who had had her purse stolen on New Year's Eve. And inside that purse were $600 worth of gift cards And she needed those gift cards not to buy charcuterie boards and wine, but for like basic needs, basic groceries. And just this past week, you bought groceries for this woman. You dropped groceries off on her doorstep. You helped her feed her family. I've seen all these things this year, Christ City. I've seen you give up your time, your energy, your expertise to serve the most needy and vulnerable in our city and in our midst, in this community. And I'm sure in a few weeks' time, when we drop off a whole ton of diapers, I'll see it again. You've done all this and so much more. And so Christ City, let me in this pastoral reprieve say to you, you know the Father. You have a living relationship with him. I've seen it. You know him, Jesus, who was from the beginning. Again, all that I've said does not purchase your relationship with God. It cannot be bought. But your knowing God 
a relationship that God has graciously brought us into and you into, this has been on full display this year as we step back and consider all that God has done in us and through us as a community. And I just want to commend you. I want to take a whole point and say thank you. And as a pastor, it is my joy to serve people who are so generous and so sacrificial and want to follow Jesus so fully. Have confidence, Pastor John tells us all. Take heart. You know God. You know him. Finally, lastly, John reminds all of us, take heart. You have overcome the evil one. Look at 1 John 2, verses 13 and 14 with me. Let's read it. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. As we close this brief pastoral reprieve, I want to answer two questions. What does John mean when he says that we have overcome the evil one? And then secondly, why does John want to give this confident reminder specifically to those who are young or immature in their faith? Remember, young men here is just all those who are immature or young in their faith. You could have gray hairs or you could have, you know, baby no hair. First question, what does John mean when he says we have overcome the evil one? This will be jarring to those of you who are listening in, uh, who do not follow Jesus, who are perhaps new to the Christian faith. But when John refers to the evil one, he's not talking about a general sense of injustice or evil or, or wrongness in the world. Uh, he's not talking about a, a political leader, a physical person who's oppressing people or doing bad things. He's not even talking about sin itself in a vague, general sense. The evil one who has been overcome for John is the devil, is Satan, which is jarring. We believe in the devil. We believe in Satan, this spiritual entity, this fallen angel who Jesus calls in John's gospel the father of lies. Just a little while later, he'll call him the ruler of this world. And Satan is the one whom John will continue to tell us has been sinning from the beginning. We'll see that in chapter 3. So yes, prior coming to Jesus, we were captive to our own fleshy desires. We were captive to worldly philosophies and ideologies. But we were ultimately at root, at foundation, captive to the devil and the demonic. That's what John's talking about here. And before you ask, well, well, how did we get out of that pickle? Here's what I want to highlight in this sermon. I don't know if you've noticed a theme. I don't know if you've picked up on this theme in this sermon. All these things that John gives to us now that are to inspire confidence in us, who does them? Who does all of these things that are to give you and me right now in the midst of a pandemic, in the midst of a command-heavy book, confidence, who does that? On account of Jesus' work, our sins are forgiven. 
The love that shows our knowing of God comes from the fact that he first loved us. So we should not be surprised then that the overcoming of the evil one is yet another triumph of God's grace in our life. The Apostle Paul writes this, and and turn with me. Go to Colossians 2. It's left in your Bible. Colossians 2, verses 13 to 15. And there, the Apostle Paul will write the church in Colossae these words. Look at verses 13 to 15 of Colossians 2 with me. Ready? And you, Paul says, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, In other words, you who could do nothing. Dead people can do nothing. What happened? God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. We we typically stop there, right? Okay, our sins are forgiven. They were paid for on the cross. But listen to the spiritual reality of our salvation. Listen, in verse 15, Paul writes this. John refers to this. He, that is God, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. In Jesus, we have overcome the evil one. In Jesus, we have overcome our true enemy. It's not that person next door And it's not that annoying person at work. It is the evil one and the demonic to whom or with whom we truly battle. In fact, the war has been won, John says. And while little skirmishes remain, he has been defeated. Now, John thinks that this truth is specifically applicable for those listening right now on this call who are new to their faith, immature in their faith. So if you're young right now, maybe you're one of my boys roaming around at home, or maybe you're a youth on this call right now, or you're new to faith. If you're young right now, I'm talking to you. I want to read to you 1 John 2, verse 14 again. Listen, young in your faith or young in your age stage, listen. I write to you, young men, because you are strong. And the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. We could say it this way. Young believer, listen up. You have once and for all been rescued from the devil. You are no longer in his grasp. Meaning, you can say no to sin. The other day, I was talking with a a young man who was struggling with self-control, struggling with self-control. And he told me, I can't help myself. I just do it. I just do it. And I could sympathize with him. My flesh is often so weak, so weak. I can't do it on my own. But I also knew that this young man professed to follow Jesus, to know God. Therefore, I knew this young man had victory over the evil one, that he was no longer helpless to the schemes of the devil and his flesh. But now this young man could say no because the Spirit of God lives in him. So young believer, 
youth, new Christian, listen up. You are no longer slave to your sin. So crucify it. Kill it. Get rid of it. Get with the Father in prayer and get with others. Get with the church. Spend time there and put it to death. I beg you, because as we saw last week and as we'll experience in this life, your sin does not just affect you and eventually lead to your own death. Your sin affects the broader community, leads to death more widely in our community. And young believer, John gives us one final gift. He gives you one final gift. He says this, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Our strength comes from outside of us. Yes, it comes from God's indwelling presence, but it also comes from God's word. It comes from God's word. How do we remain persistent in strength against the devil, against the evil one? We teach, we meditate, we feast on the scriptures. Let me be very, very applicable. Young person, new believer, go right now, download the Read Scripture app, and start reading your Bible. Start reading your Bible. Start getting into the Word. And when you're confused, which you will be because we're in Leviticus right now, that'll happen soon, email your community group leader. Email me, jake at christlychurch.ca. Call me, and we'll talk about it together. I promise I'll take that call. Put down the remote. Put down the video game controller. Put down whatever is hindering your faith with Jesus and start investing in the word of God. That is my word to the young believers this morning. Get in the word. Become obsessed with the word of God. Fill yourself with the word of God. A mature believer, seasoned Christian on this call, I also have a challenge to you. All that Bible knowledge, all that insight you've spent your life obtaining, it's not just for you. It's not just for you. It's for that young person on this call right now who is floundering because no one is mentoring them. It's for that person who can't make heads or tails of Leviticus because no one is coming alongside them. If you would like to mentor someone, email me this week. I will pair you with someone to be mentored. If you would like to be mentored, email me this week. I will pair you with a mentor. This needs to be the dynamic that exists in the church of Jesus. The word of God is active, we are told. To both of you the immature and the mature. Hear these words of confidence. Hear these words of comfort in the midst of a command-heavy letter. You are strong because your sins are forgiven in Jesus and in Jesus alone. You are strong because you know him. You know him who is from the beginning. You are strong because the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. You've overcome the devil himself. Let's pray. So Father, this morning, our posture is simply to come and receive and be reminded of what is already true of us, that our sins are forgiven, 
that we know you, that we've overcome the evil one, that all these things that have happened, not because of what we've done, because we're good enough or great enough or smart enough, but because you've done them in our life. Because you're good enough, you're great enough, and you're strong enough. So we glorify and magnify your name this morning. We leave today and we live this week full of that confidence that you have done this and nothing can change that. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.